you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. Do kids really secretly enjoy hard problems? What happens when we let children control their own learning? And what can U.S. educators learn from Canadian educators? Join us for some perspectives from the other side of our northern border. You see these one-liners on Twitter all the time, things like, kids won't have to memorize anything anymore, they can just Google it. So... I think that's a dangerous kind of thing to leave all alone by itself for our younger teachers who then go back to their classrooms and say, kids don't have to know any facts. They don't have to learn knowledge. They can Google it all. So I think the response that I try now with people when I hear that from them is, what do you mean by memorization? Well, you know, useless facts. They shouldn't have to memorize useless facts and try and get them to the place of understanding where they're realizing that that's not what they mean. What they're really meaning is disconnected, useless, decontextualized facts may be useless to learn, but kids really probably need a good interconnected body of knowledge with which to think about deeper issues. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. I'm going to begin today with an excerpt from Marvin Minsky's book, Society of Mind. Why are processes so hard to classify? In earlier times, we could usually judge machines and processes by how they transformed raw materials into finished product. But it makes no sense to speak of brains as though they manufacture thoughts the way factories make cars. The difference is that brains use processes that change themselves. And this means we cannot separate such processes from the products they produce. In particular, brains make memories which change the ways we'll subsequently think. The principal activities of brains are making changes in themselves. Because the whole idea of self-modifying processes is new to our experience, we cannot yet trust our common sense judgments about such matters. Minsky goes on to describe how difficult it is to study the brain and conjectures that with further research, we'll discover that the brain is simply a very complex computer with billions of small interconnected parts. I'm not sure if I agree with Minsky or not. We used to believe that cells are amorphous, gelatinous corpuscles, but the closer we look, the weirder they get, unlike atoms and elementary particles. In recent years, we've delved deeper into cells and their nanoprocesses than anyone ever thought possible, and cells are still mysterious. But I digress. Today I want us to focus on the main job of learning, helping the brain become better at building itself. Today's guest is an expert at helping children learn to build their brains. Peter Skillen is a truly fascinating individual, and I think you'll agree with me by the end of the podcast. So my guest today is Peter Skillen. Peter describes himself as a learner, and uh, that definitely strikes all, it catches all of my excitement bells about when someone says learner rather than teacher when they stand in front of a classroom. Uh, he also describes himself as a co-investigator in his classrooms, which again, uh, just excites me. 
And I love that he talks about the idea of standing on the shoulders of giants. He specifically calls out uh, Seymour Papert and two people that I hadn't heard of, but that will link up and try to give credit where credit is due, uh, Marlene Scardamalia and Carl Bereiter. And these are both professors from the University of Toronto. So, Peter, tell us a little bit about how you got to this place of being a learner. I think I've always been pretty much a learner all my life, experimenting, tinkering, playing around, not with the materials that one would find in a maker movement so much, but just in nature. I always like to be outside, always like to you know learn about things in the environment and so forth. Then as I went through my teens, I got fascinated with animal behavior of all things. So yeah. I'd follow some of the key people who were doing that kind of work in those days. Thorndike with his stickleback fish and Jane Goodall and, and other um, eth- ethologists, people who studied animal behavior. So I really thought that that was going to be my path and end up as a teacher. So it's really not far off animal behavior, I guess, in, in some <laughs> respects. You know, and, and I'll be transparent here. I went into the science program at University of Guelph and uh, it was the late 60s, so there were other competing factors that didn't make me so successful in the science program at the university at that time. So I actually uh, left university, not by choice, after a couple of years and wondered what I was going to do. And, you know, my mother said to me, Peter, you've always liked children. Well, why, why don't you think about teaching? So I thought, you know what? That's a good idea. And you can start teaching in Ontario with one-year teacher education program in those days without university. It was the last year you could do it, so I jumped on it and became a, a teacher in 1970. So that was the era of open classrooms and activity approach and student in charge and inquiry. You, you know, We didn't call it that stuff then. All, all this stuff's coming back now. But because of my way of being in the world, my and my love for people to be in charge of their own things, others thought, oh, this guy's pretty good. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm just struggling along here, you know, not really know what I'm doing. I'm... So it was tough in a way because a lot of the traditional teachers were saying, oh, Peter, your classroom's so messy and, and all that kind of thing. And I'm saying, oh, well, you know, maybe messy, but the fact is that I'm not just expecting the kids to learn the material at hand. I'm expecting them also to manage their learning of the material at hand. So really, my expectations just might be more than you have for your kids. You know, you've got them in control. I get that. Mine are in control too, but it's a dance, you know. If they're not controlling themselves, then I step in. So this has been a learning journey uh, over the course of my long career. Even to this day, I'm still battling with that kind of argument. So I I guess I'd like to ask you a little more on the education side before we rewind the clock, because you have a longer view than many of the teachers that I talk to. You've seen lots of trends come and go. Tell us about how you think that has impacted how we view education maybe over the last 30, 40 years. I I described myself at a conference the other day as the OG, the original gangster, or or maybe maybe just the old guy. (laughs) I don't really think it's impacted much at all. I don't think we pay much attention to history. And in fairness, it's been extremely frustrating for me to watch these things cycle in, cycle out, cycle back in, cycle out. 
are we at a different tipping point now with you know with the maker movement with the focus on inquiry with the focus on student in charge kind of learning and all that that we hear about from uh, expensive speakers and others and from businesses and from the corporate side of things i'm not sure i'm going to have to be optimistic still i am old i'm still here i obviously have some optimism left in me to to carry on so there have been several phases I've seen. Let's just talk about technology uh, uptake, if you don't mind. Sure. So, for example, when microcomputers came along in the late 70s, I jumped on it, even thinking, well, I'm a humanist. Why would I be using computers? Com you know, computers can be controlling kids. And when I realized, I, I rented a dumb terminal and took it into my grade one classroom and hooked it up via telephone line to the university to get some connection because there no, there's no software on the thing and I had my grade ones in this underprivileged neighborhood programming in basic and when I and programming basic print Janine print Janine 10 times you know that was <laughs> the extent of it but, but, but these little kids were standing around together three or four of them and when it worked their eyes lit up their shoulders squared their heads raised when it failed they said let's figure it out let's figure it out and they'd solve it and there'd be cheers you know, this was to me a, a moment where I realized that hard stuff was okay. They liked hard stuff. They just didn't like the school hard stuff that was totally disconnected from their lives. So with this onset of microcomputers, I saw this first phase of things where people, uh, some number of people got on board. And then Logo came with uh, Seymour Papert and Cynthia Solomon in the group. And we set up Logo communities all over North America, all over the world, actually. And this was a, a great phase where lots of people were getting on board, but not everybody. Then, for some reason, in Ontario certainly what happened is we had a political change and uh, more of a desire to get back to basics. So, you know, the run ran dry, if you like. The river ran dry for that stuff, and we end up doing more traditional stuff. The conference numbers fell off at ed tech conferences, which I, which I hate to call them, by the way. I hate calling them ed tech conferences enhanced by you know for learning enhanced by technologies and stuff and then the next phase seemed to be when the world wide web hit I mean, many of us were doing global projects in the 80s with the tough stuff with a lot of command line stuff and with uh, email with fax machines uh, to Russia at the time we were doing great global based projects because that's what we wanted to do the world wide web came along all of a sudden now we're seeing senior people who can actually click on links and go places and do things and think, oh, okay, this must really be something. So then there was a new wave of uptake that happened. And still all this time, we're thinking, great, so now some more people are seeing that the affordances of the technologies are going to improve not just student learning, but improve student empowerment, improve teacher empowerment, improve the democratization of education. And uh, over a period of time, what we saw was somewhat of the opposite happening. We saw, again, I don't be really anti-corporate because I actually think we do need corporate partnerships and so forth. But when the education agenda is appropriated by the corporate individuals or by senior managers who, who are, for the most part, non-users of, of deep technologies, I have issues. So, again, the dream didn't quite get realized at that point, I didn't think. So things sort of faded off again. Now this last phase that we're currently in, the mobile devices and ubiquitous computing. 
Uh, everybody's got one, so now everybody's an expert. So now decision makers are really making decisions widely based on the fact that they can use Facebook and the fact that they can use this, that, and the other thing they can connect via Twitter. But the reality for me, again, goes back to are the decision makers really understanding viscerally the impact on learning as appropriate, as afforded by the technologies that we didn't have before? Why are we now saying inquiry is new? Why are we saying collaboration is new? Why are we saying social constructionism is new? Coding is new. Well, programming is new. Coding. It's not paid attention to. So people talk about innovation. I would be delighted to talk about innovation, but I would be more delighted if people, in fact, would have that base of knowledge and understanding and passion and experience based on all the previous stuff, a rich interconnected body of knowledge, and start innovating from that point. So when people say to me, kids need to be in charge of their own learning, I agree. I've agreed with that for 40 years. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Well, they should be able to make choices in school. What kind of choices? Well, they should be able to choose what they're going to study. Oh, so if they're in your math class, they could study something else. Well, no, they need to study. Oh, okay, so you don't mean total control. Well, no, <laughs> within the parameters of the curriculum. Okay, cool. Are they allowed to, if they're in charge, are they allowed to arrive at school at, at the time of their choice? Oh, well, no, they need to be there at 9.15 when the class starts. Do they have to finish all your assignments? You know, there's a lot of control issues. Those are the discussions I would prefer to have. By the way, in the last school I was at, those discussions I did have with my students because I did believe that they had the power and choice as young adults to make those decisions. I didn't have to agree with them, and I often didn't, but I would respect their right to make that decision and not use a zero-tolerance approach, but rather a harm reduction approach where they'd carry on the way they carried on, and I'd say to them, hey, how's that working for you? Coming in late every day, working for you okay? Are you achieving your goals? You told me you want to get this class and you know, learn this stuff. Is it working? Not really. Okay, how, what are we going to do about that? Uh, well, maybe I should get here in time. Well, I put all the stuff online, so if you can't make it on time, maybe you catch it there. Or, you know, I'm not going to restart my class if you arrive 10 minutes late, so maybe you could catch up with one of your other students. Whatever works for you. So, you know, I think my, <laughs> think my colleagues don't look at me like I've got two heads when I talk like that. That was sort of way off your question. but No, no, actually, I I've, was very interested to, to get your perspective because you have seen a lot of things come and go. And I guess fundamentally, I, I do believe that things kind of go around in cycles very often. And, you know, probably inquiry came about at some previous time and we just, you know, didn't get written down in a history book somewhere and we just missed that. But and maybe I could just ask this explicitly. It sounds like all the way through this whole process that you maintained a similar approach to teaching, like it didn't fluctuate a lot with the coming and going of trends. That is very true. What has happened, however, uh, I do maintain an open mind as much as possible. OK, I'll, I'll tell you something here that has been really useful for me. In my earlier days, whenever people disagreed with me a lot, I would basically push back on them real hard. In fact, often very rudely. And I didn't care. You might have gathered by this point that I'm not <laughs> one to worry too much about that positional authority. <laughs> so, so I would push back. I didn't care if you were our technician in the, in the school. I didn't care if you were the senior superintendent or the director of education. 
I would push back and I would push back inappropriately many times. What I've discovered is that uh, you often just get alienated from the group. They just ostracize you so you're no longer included in the decision making. So over the course of the last eight, ten years, uh, I've had the good fortune of working with one person. His name is Jim Milligan, who taught me a lot about harm reduction, about appreciative inquiry, about trying to respect people and trying to understand that people are always just doing the best they know how to do, be that right or wrong. I also worked with Powerful Learning Practice in Cheryl Nussbaum Beach. That was a coaching environment, uh, professional learning over the course of a year, and you end up coaching people. And so you, you got back into appreciative inquiry and evocative coaching and, and, and things where it really you know, wasn't about you, about, about your ego. You know, trying to separate your, your ego out when you're as passionate as, as I am about this stuff is a challenge. And so what I've, I'm getting better at, and I say that I'm getting better at it because it's a work in progress, <laughs> is hearing what I would initially perceive to be like just inane, stupid ideas. And that's judgment right there, right off the bat. But just taking the pause, just five seconds, even six seconds, and trying to understand what the, that person is actually saying rather than while they're talking, thinking about what I'm going to say back that will fight with their idea. In fact, try and paraphrase part of what they're saying and ask a question that will deepen their understanding of what they're meaning and what, what I'm trying to say. So, for example, here's one. You see these one-liners on Twitter all the time, things like, kids won't have to memorize anything anymore. They can just Google it. So... I think that's a dangerous kind of thing to leave all alone by itself for our younger teachers who then go back to their classrooms and say, kids don't have to know any facts. They don't have to learn knowledge. They can Google it all. So I think the response that I try now with people when I hear that from them is, what do you mean by memorization? Well, you know, useless facts. They shouldn't have to memorize useless facts. What would you mean by useless facts? ones that aren't connected to anything else. Well, what about the facts that are connected to everything else? And try and get them to the place of understanding where they're realizing that that's not what they mean. What they're really meaning is disconnected, useless, decontextualized facts may be useless to learn, but kids really probably need a good interconnected body of knowledge with which to think about deeper issues. I like how you separated that, actually, because I've, I've gone back and forth on that idea. I actually have a very personal example on this. My daughter did an online school program when she was in first grade, and I, I helped her with the math, and we did uh, like number charts, like you know, zero to 100 in you know, rows of 10 and look for patterns. We did all kinds of counting things. We did negative numbers. So she has a really good framework for, for numbers, mm -hmm. but I didn't drill facts. Mm -hmm. And she's in high school now. And she struggles with facts, and it slows down everything she does in math. That's but, right. she's, but she's a brilliant thinker. Yeah. And I can tell how she, when she approaches a math problem, she just sometimes she'll write down her approach. And in my mind, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, like that's true. But how did you get that? Because I know you didn't get that from a book. And yet there's this disconnected thing in her mind where, you know, where seven times eight just doesn't pop into her head. You know, right. but, you know, in the education I had growing up, we drilled all those things until, you know, until mm -hmm. the cows came home. Yeah. And somewhere in between, I think, is a more healthy approach, you know, to have both that framework that my daughter had and then also have those those facts, like you said, right. 
So they're not completely disconnected and you have a framework for thinking. So this is the kind of discussion that I I love to involve in because it pushes my thinking because, you know, around these. And, and in fact, I do think that learning the facts is a, is a great thing. So they become automatized. And I'm not a gamification guy. I don't really like gamification, but I don't mind having a lot of fun learning them with kids and having kids learn them. So we had some interesting times with that to do that. And I mean, quite bluntly, I remember telling my grade twos, hey, got to learn these facts because honestly, your grade three teacher's going to think you're pretty dumb if you don't have them. You know? <laughs> so let's let's get on with it, you know? And then we'd get into the game and, uh, you know, we, we'd have fun. And it was it was successful because there are some things that just are, need to be automatized. Some of the history facts and uh, geography facts that are disconnected may not be as relevant as sort of those daily task facts that you need, you know? So to make the simplistic statements uh, are great places maybe for starting points for conversation, but as standalones, uh, they're dangerous. I like how you connected that to the idea of standalone statements because I think my experience of doing research and uh, pretty much everywhere in life is when you have those standalone statements, building anything around that is tenuous. It's not very stable. Yeah. I do a session called Myth Busting with a friend of mine, Brenda Sherry, and, and that's one of the myths that we, we bust Well, we attempt to bust. So I'd like to rewind this, actually, because we've been talking for a while about your educational career and about where you've been and the classroom experiences and the long-term view. But I'm curious, what brought you to that place in the beginning? And you talked a little bit about becoming interested in teaching, but I'm interested, actually, in your educational experience. Like, if you think way back to, you know, grade school, middle school, high school, did they have middle school when you were in school? Yeah. All right. I, I don't remember. I, I didn't have middle school when I was in school because we, we had a K-8 school. So tell us about that. Were there any experiences or what do you remember in that time period? Uh, my schooling was mundane. I mean, really, I, I went to school and I remember very few little bits. So, for example, I was born in Belfast, Northern Ireland. And I remember the teacher reading Wind of the Willows. That was a huge thing for me. Then I moved to Canada when I was eight years old and moved to Don Mills, Ontario and went to Norman Ingram Public School. And I remember a teacher, Norm Crozier, wasn't my teacher, but he used to pop his head in, say something to us all, make us all laugh, make me feel good. You know, he'd look you in the eye, make you feel good. Junior high, I remember trying to be a sports guy, but I was like 135 pounds, so that wasn't happening. So I was a lines person. <laughs> and in secondary school, one teacher, Jeffrey Saloon, geography teacher, made me fall in love with geography. And honestly, through those levels of school, that was it. I wasn't a great student. I was an average student, but I was not a great student. It wasn't until I started teaching that I fell in love with learning of that style. Wow. So what you just described was this experience of gray all the way through your learning experience with with sort of one or two bright spots of maybe a specific experience or a specific teacher. Do you think that's changed or do you think we're still kind of in that same environment? Have we changed that at all? I think there are pockets where it's changed. I don't think it's institutionalized in any way. And I think in, in some respects, I know the U.S. experience is hugely different from the Ontario experience. 
Uh, I can probably speak to both because I've worked with so many U.S. teachers. The gray in the states is uh, in the schools, in some of the schools in the states, is interspersed with lightning bolts of testing on a regular basis, <laughs> which aren't, in my opinion, necessarily a good thing. <laughs> In Ontario, uh, we have very little testing, uh, standardized testing. We focus much more on formative assessment, so evaluation for learning, helping kids to understand how to evaluate their own stuff and teachers evaluating their own stuff to help them learn better. So it's, it's very normative in nature. I'm very interested, you know, in in understanding what are those key things we can focus on, not because they're the only thing that matters, but because maybe it's that thing that if we push on it, other things will follow it. Right. And and I hear lots of theories, you know, one of them that I that I like a lot is the idea of allowing the classroom teacher to be a professional. Because they went to school to learn a lot Agreed. of things. They wouldn't be in the classroom Agreed. if they weren't passionate. And I think a lot of teachers would up their game quite a bit if they weren't told micromanaged all the time. And, you know, that's just that's a personal opinion. I'm not in the classroom. I don't make any of those decisions. That's the outsider view. I'm curious from the inside, like, what do you see? And is there a key? Is there something we could do so that we don't get unfocused and focus on everything so that nothing gets done? Well, you may be on the outside, but you've got an inside view. So many years ago, I said to my superintendents, if you want students to do better in school, stop what you're doing, uh, treat the teachers, and, and empower teachers to be passionate. Because if the teachers are not passionate and have decision-making, you won't get anywhere. I had a big discussion at a conference the other day in Ontario because here we are moving forward quite well. I'll come back to the U.S. on this in a sec, but we are moving forward really quite well. Our Ministry of Education is bang on. They're really uh, very impressed. I used to be pretty anti-establishment for them <laughs> too. But, but in fairness, all that they're saying about student-based learning and student-driven learning and all the, you call them 21st century skills, you can call them modern skills, you can call them digital age learning skills, whatever, whatever you want to call them, but all the collaboration, you know, all the stuff that we've all heard recently. Yeah. The ministry means it, but my caution was, you mean it, and I'll take the example of kids in charge of their own learning again. Do you really mean it? Do you really want the kids in charge of their own learning? And if you do, what does that mean? And then my ne next question was, superintendents, you're going to let your teachers be in charge of their own professional lives as well? Because if you're not doing it up there, it ain't going to happen in the classroom level. And directors of education, are you going to let your superintendents... You know, make mistakes, tinker, do the good stuff. Because if you're not, it ain't going to work. And so it's a huge trust issue, huge trust and power issue. I know the micromanagement I hear about in your schools is you know, scary to me. And you have so many school districts because some of your school districts have one school, two schools, five schools. They're not all, you know, there's so many of them. I haven't got it figured out yet uh, for, the, for the U.S. I don't know what, the, it's a fascinating country. You know, very polarized. We we tend to be, you know, more, quote, socialist in nature. We got more burn. <laughs> <laughs> we, got, we got Justin. <laughs> I think one of the major issues that you may have is the charter school movement because they are, you know, they're not uh, educationally driven per se. They are 
run by a bunch of really wealthy people who have a corporate agenda. That's my understanding about it anyway. And they're looking at different scores and different testing kinds of things. And I'm not sure they're measuring the stuff that matters. So if we don't learn or educate our kids and give them the opportunity to grapple with their own learning, we just shovel facts at them or, you know, skills or whatever. I'm worried because yeah. what do you do in that environment if you don't know how to think? Mm-hmm. You know, listening to your approach, I mean, I've, I'll be honest, my, my wife is the educator. I'm the tech guy. And watching her teach is a beautiful experience because the students will learn things that she doesn't know. Exactly. Because she doesn't, exactly. she doesn't have this ego that says, "Oh, you have to know what I know." And she's just, she's interested in them learning. And you know, as I listen to you and see this long-term perspective, I mean, in my mind, I'm wondering how do we spark more of that so it's not just isolated pockets. And maybe this is just me being optimistic because I love to be idealistic. Yeah, I sort of struggled with this for years uh, as well. And in fairness. Although I've been a staff, you know, professional learning educator for many, many years, I always sort of worked at individual levels because my interest and fascination has always been dug more deeply down as to how do kids learn rather than leveling it up and scaling it up across uh, institutions and systems. But I haven't been able to avoid that because it's almost a necessary part of the mission that I would have to be engaged with. Chris Deedy out of Harvard is doing some nice work and has done some nice work with Ontario Ministry of Education as well in terms of scaling. There's also another great project, again, run by the ministry and the Ontario Teachers Federation, which is the union, so it's a joint project between the government and the union, called uh, Teacher Leadership and Learning Program, TLLP. And it's the same kind of thing. Groups of teachers will propose an action research project and over the course of the year, they'll get the money. They'll come together all as a group, fly in from wherever in Ontario to Toronto, hang out with us for a couple of days, sort of get the scoop on how to do the project, on the mechanics of doing the project, managing the money, what their responsibilities are. There's an online community for them to communicate in over the course of the year. There are some required check-in points in terms of what you have to have done. The end of the year, everybody comes back together, and there's a celebration with almost like a science fair where everybody's got their projects up and around, and it's about sharing the new learning they have. And then there's an ex- extension to that program now called PLK, Provincial Learning. But the idea is that they can now get more money to go out and tell other people and educate other people on that which they've done successfully. So there's this bottom-up crowdsourcing, building of expertise that hopefully will bridge this chasm, innovation chasm that's been so often talked about to get it scaled up to a decent level so it's in more classrooms. Well, I can definitely see that I have about another three dozen questions and we need to wrap up the interview. So I I do have two questions I always ask at the end and I'm really curious about your answers. The first one is in the digital age, you know, we have all these new tools, and you certainly have a, an excellent long-term view on this. What does it mean to be educated? So we have that word educated in quotes. Define that term for us in this context. Marvin Minsky, the late Marvin Minsky, said that the principal activity of people is building their own brains. And I sort of have to buy into that. Those words struck me, but I, I've already believed it for quite a long time. In fact, I'm trying to get a book done. 
that really relates to that whole issue of, I didn't ask the question, what does it mean to be educated? But really, to me, it means somebody who can really take an active role in building their own brain, heart, soul, and so forth. And that incorporates all the issues around uh, doing service work, doing good social justice work, looking ahead to the next problem to solve, not looking at life as a thing where you check things off and then you can just chill, but rather progressively problem solving, progressively solving the next problem as you solve one and set it aside. I like what you said about building your own brain. So the, the last question is more of a philosophical question, and it's what is the purpose of an education? You've had the opportunity to look at this for a while. From your perspective, what is the purpose of an education? And I, that's kind of related to the last question. It is. I think the purpose of an education is to have somebody become an extremely well-rounded, humanistic individual who understands that they live in a community of people and animals and nature and will serve to make the world a better place and will continue to struggle towards that end. Excellent. Well, I think we're going to wrap it right there. Thank you, Peter, for giving us some deep insights into education on the long-term view. And from the outside, actually. We hear a lot from the inside here in the U.S., but it's interesting to see this from a different perspective from the outside. So if our uh, listeners are interested in reaching out, knowing more about you and more about what you do, what's the best way for them to do that? Twitter works. Facebook works. Email works. Checking out my blog and responding and giving me some pushback works. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you, Peter, for taking some time to talk to our audience today. Thanks, Steve. It's great chatting with you. Thank you so much. Appreciate the opportunity. From our experience at Tabletop Inventing, the approaches and ideas Peter shared today are spot on. And Peter has decades of experience letting kids take charge of their learning. If you want to see what happens when kids grab their learning by the horns and charge off in unexpected directions, find an inventor camp near you. Sign up now at ttinvent.com slash inventor camp. Let's all get a little better at building our brains. <laughs> <laughs>